Hello and welcome to the Legal and Governance Hub podcast show. I'm your host, Golnaz Raja. I started this podcast to share my experience and knowledge of governance, risk management and regulation, and why these are particularly necessary for startups and fintechs. With growing pressure on the need for companies to make profit and remain sustainable, from my professional experience, governance and risk plays a huge part in the long-term success and viability of a company. We hope you enjoy our show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our fifth episode. I'd like to introduce Niels Peterson, who is the author of Financial Technology Case Studies in Fintech Innovation. It's lovely to have you with us. Um, Niels is a a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University, and uh, we will be doing a deep dive into his opinion about fintechs and and also his new book as well. It's a great pleasure to have you. Likewise, Goldman, it's great to be here. So what inspired you to bring out your own book on financial technology? So I I got interested in fintech when we launched a program on it at MMU. And I I started because I I was uh, leading the, the course at the time, I had to read up on fintech. And I quickly realized like a lot of the stuff you see out there, whether it's in academic papers or on specialist fintech blogs or in the financial press and so on, it is very, very specific. And so I wanted to give people a bird's eye eye view of of what was going on in the fintech sector. At the same time, my background is in professional services. I'm a chartered accountant. I used to be a regulator some years ago. And so so really, I wanted to write a book that kind of deciphered a lot of the the key technologies. So blockchain, machine learning, cloud computing, APIs, and so on. But I wanted to explain it from the angle of someone in business or professional services in a language that they'd understand. So so that was the impetus to write the book. I I think I got my head around what was going on. It took me a year and a half, uh, but but I got there. And it's very nice to have some free time now. Uh, so yeah that's the story of the book I think when I when we initially connected I was as somebody that's worked within financial regulation for the last eight years and has an understanding of it from a regulatory perspective and working with challenger banks and fintechs you know we we tend to sort of look at things in a very kind of one-way street we don't sort of look outside the box of actually what the implications are having and I think when you're actually sat within a boardroom you tend to figure out actually, oh, right, that's how it works. And and that's why this is happening. And that's why that marketing campaign is being deployed. And, and, and that's what it means when we get investment. So it's quite an interesting position to sit in from, from my perspective when I was in the boardroom, because it got me to really understand what was happening. And I think reading your book as well, it helped me to actually put you know, join some of those dots. One chapter that you've got, which is really interesting in your book, is looking to the future and uh, personalization. And we were, you know, talking about sort of accessibility to financial services and, and actually particularly around this time during a pandemic and what impact that's had. Did you did you have more thoughts on that as the pandemic has progressed and the impact that, that that's had? Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, so, so you mentioned personalization. So, so one of the things that fintechs have been very good at is distributing their product via the internet. And that, that's very cost effective compared to, say, having bank branches, you know, advertising stuff in newspapers and on TV, like, like you know, the big players do. Now, one of the problems with just relying on a digital channel is that not everyone can or wants to use a digital channel. And so I, I 
I had this epiphany a few months ago. It, it was a cold December morning, and I walked past a bank branch on my local high street, and there was a long queue outside. So even with social distancing, even with uh, you know the risk or the perceived risk of, of catching an infectious disease like COVID, people are still willing to go to the branch. Now, now I thought, well, you know, why don't they just do it online? Well, and the answer is either they don't want to or either they can't. So I think what one of the things we overlook in the technological innovation is that human touch. Absolutely. I mean, I had a very personal experience actually during the coronavirus where I had this bank account that I knew I had it and it was a savings account, but it was quite an old uh, account that I had uh, with a leading bank. And the only way I could actually access this account, I had it on my phone in an app. But when I went online to visit this on one of the websites, I actually had no access to it apart from the app. And what I found the difficulty was, was that when I changed phones, I couldn't open the app unless I used my old phone. And the only way I could bring it you know, to life on the actual screen was if I went into branch and got them to actually move this account onto the system that I could actually access. You know, I was actually quite surprised because it was quite concerning that you've got this account, it's got savings in there, and the only way I can access it is via this one button on one phone. For me, it was a realisation. In terms of what I'm seeing, it hasn't all moved over and some of these legacy systems are... Are, uh, having a huge impact because if you've got an old account from 10 years ago it's it's nowhere near where it should be in today's standard so from that perspective it, you know I needed to go into branch but I couldn't because it was shut during that that time when we had the full lockdown and also I couldn't go into branch because of the health conditions I'm unable to go uh, out in public anyway so it was quite difficult for me as a young person to be able to get access to something that I needed but I think like you say you know the fact that you were saying about sort of 9 million people or approximately that amount not having access to digital services. How have you, in your sort of research or time writing the book, what impact do you think that's had sort of on on the older age group in terms of their access to some of these digital services? Well, well, I mean, they they must really be struggling at the moment because, you know, a lot of older people are at risk. They're they're not necessarily the most technologically savvy demographic in society. So they're probably the ones who are most excluded from financial services because of our present circumstances. But I I wanted to touch on something, you know, the experience you related, it's quite interesting because you are in an age group where you are assumed to be um, technologically savvy, and you are, but yet even with all that, you're still having a what I would presume would be quite a, an onerous and a, a burdensome consumer experience. That's right. And, and, and so, so that, that speaks to this idea that, that banks, fintechs are, are very good at making the, the sales pitch, the amp, right? That, that mm. looks beautiful. A lot of times it's very easy to sign up. All the UX, the, the user experience is fine. But then I think there is in the industry a risk that they overlook the after-sales service and the behind the scenes. So so that's where, you know, uh, what I would call a mental transaction cost. So uncertainty, hassle, time on part of consumers, but also internal staff. That's where the, the biggest gains for the industry are. Can we make those background processes and workflows? Can we use technology to make those more efficient and effective, but also more human friendly? That's right. 
And uh, I think we were also, you know, talking about the focus of fintechs about, you know, in terms of investor relations, and it takes a while for fintechs to be become profitable. In some cases, we've seen sort of at least five to seven years, and, and actually, we've seen more established fintechs that aren't actually quite there yet in their profitability journey. And they've experienced huge difficulties um, to the extent of, you know, annual results not looking as great as they should be. This need to be revenue generating and a good sort of, you know, unit economics. Is there anything that you think that fintechs could potentially be exploring further in, in terms of looking beyond the day to day? When is my next investment coming? Well, yeah, I suppose the question is, if you can get millions of customers or hundreds of thousands and you can't turn a profit, there must come a point in the future where, where people say, well, at, at what point do, do you say it's, it's not a viable business model? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the, the big question. Like, like if, if you look at a conventional business with a shop, your financiers would not cut you that amount of slack. No, you couldn't have or even a bigger business like say Tesco, their bankers and investors would not let them make a loss year after year after year. So, so I think. Because we're in the environment where we have very low interest rates, I think a lot of fintechs that maybe in another time wouldn't have been able to get access to capital, maybe they wouldn't have been able to do that. They wouldn't have been around as long, but they're given a a new lease of life Hmm. because the economy is becoming more and more digitized. So the question for a fintech is, well, okay, if everyone is launching an app, how can I make myself different? And I, I think the answer lies in providing a human touch as part of your business model. And then people say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's quite simple. Like, whereas you may not need a branch, you still need access to, say, customer support. At those points in the customer journey where consumers feel the greatest hassle or uncertainty. I think like that middle way of digitization to make things more efficient behind the scenes, giving people a human touch. Mm. is important. So, so as an example, we are recording an audio track, but yet we're we're looking at each other via a uh, camera, which we don't need to do. But nonetheless, we chose to do it because there is more of a genuine connection. That's the key. Can startups, fintechs, can they bring that human touch into their digital proposition? Yeah, I, I totally Sorry, agree that was a very long answer. No, I, I, I think that was a, it was a great answer and really useful. And I think it kind of brings up for me, you know, the challenges of artificial intelligence and, and, and data protection, really, because as someone that's got a regulatory background, it brings up some concerns because although it's amazing to have artificial intelligence, there is obviously that risk that it poses to individual rights and, and things like, you know, is data statistically accurate and how is machine learning able to prevent discrimination well, from happening? Well, the short answer is, unfortunately, it's very, very difficult because any statistical tool, any quantitative tool treats people as part of a class or a group. So, so for example, I am 30-something male, I have a certain income, and I live in Manchester, but that's not who I am as an individual. Like if you had uh, 10,000 people like myself, you could make fairly accurate guesses on average. But even within a population, that there are significant chunks of the population who are not average. And so, so that's, that's the inherent problem 
of just relying on computers because they take everything literally. <laughs> yes, um, they do. Yeah, yes, preventing mis mishaps like uh, discrimination or you know any manner of risks from crystallizing. The answer is really having more of a qualitative common sense input in the governance processes because if you just rely on the numbers you're going to get something's wrong absolutely um and particularly you know as we were mentioning it's so easy to open an account you know it's just at a touch of a button 10 minutes later you are signed up with that mm. bank account and one area that i think is a bit of an unusual area in artificial intelligence is the facial recognition technology i've not i'm not sure if you've experienced it where you've signed up for an app and they, they are, you know, checking your face and, and you've got to make sure it's within that square, that round oval shape. And um, you've obviously got the risk of hackers and, you know, reconstructing images. And, and where does this image actually go and how is that data secure? I think mm. that throws up quite a lot of issues, you know, for, for consumers, because although it's easy and although it's less painful in terms of having to open one up with your traditional bank, it is certainly of concern because you don't actually know whether your data is safe and, and in whose hands it gets in. Absolutely. And, and it is, I mean, maybe it sounds a little dystopian, but if you can link someone's face to their financial transactions, do you really want anyone knowing that? I mean, there, there's like the privacy is on many levels, right? So there is a basic privacy stopping criminals from accessing that information. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the more detailed information you have in one place, the more bigger neck, there's a bigger nexus of risk there, right? Mm. Uh, the other thing is, if you look at it from a libertarian perspective, again, well, anything that is centralized in one place can be abused. I remember a few years ago, I went through passport control. I, th I think it was at Heathrow Airport, and they took a scan of my face. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I didn't have any choice. Yeah. And I th and they said, oh, we'll delete it after three days because of GDPR. But, but it just felt very, very invasive. And we, we already have the technology to be able to identify ourselves. It's called fingerprints, right? Mm. And they've been they're they're used in criminal cases, and the probability of getting it wrong is extremely low. I think sometimes we use technology that is, as you say, it may be less painful, more convenient, more interesting. At, at some point, you you have to think of the you know the unintended consequences, yeah, and whether indeed it's it's actually necessary. In the case of identification, well, as far as I can tell, fingerprints work pretty well. Absolutely. And, and I think in terms of like you, like you talked about your experience at Heathrow Airport, it's, it's almost as if they get us when we are at our most vulnerable. You know, we've got off a long flight and we just yeah. want, we just want to get home. It's the same with opening up a bank account. We need to desperately change our bank account because the one that we've got is not providing us with what we need. So we will just tick through or click through anything in order to be able to get yeah. through that next stage. So, sorry to interrupt. On that specific point, there's a very strong consumer protection issue because you said, you know, we'll tick whatever box, right? So if you, you sign up for an app that gives you investment advice and they, you just tick, you've read the terms and condition, but everyone does that. Whereas if you had a human interaction with a real financial advisor, they would be able to affirm from you that you understand, say, the risks of investing, right? They can look at your facial expressions. Mm -hmm. uh, they can get you to say things and they can get a pretty good idea if, if the financial product or investment they're recommending, whether you actually understand the, the risks of that, whereas an app can't do that. It yeah. can pretend 
like, you know, you've ticked the box, you agree, it can quantitatively affirm it, but it can't do so qualitatively. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really well put. And I think just sort of looking holistically at all kind of fintech structures, particularly in banking, and you're seeing now that many other banks are now trying to get a a banking license, because they've just, they've realised that consumers want that additional protection, but also it allows them to market products in different countries it has lots of it affords different protections for them but what you've actually what you're actually finding with that is that because of these new banks and now you know the environment that they're in actually like any other uh, institution they will have their own board structure and governance process uh, and that board is, is expected to be able to challenge in in the way that we have actually done today um, some of these processes and, and risk factors that may come mm. up. Um, and, and that's really expected. I think something interesting, I had a conversation with somebody else the other day who, who said to me, a lot of these board mem- members on some fintechs are actually ex-partners at very large banks or they're ex-directors, at institutions where, that are not digital. You know, that's not their background because they're at a much older age yeah. demographically. They're older. They have a different exp- experience. And actually, are they best place to be providing executives with the advice that that they need in order to make sure that they are looking at all these factors, which I thought was a really interesting point in terms of making Mm. sure that the board is more diverse um, and able to understand some of these issues. You get the same thing with parliamentarians. They're, they're all much older, and a lot of them are from an age where they don't use as much technology. But but these are the people who set policy for regulating technology. And when Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, when, when they whenever they get hauled before Congress or the Senate in the U.S., you know, by the questions the senators and the Congress people ask, it's painfully obvious that there's a gap in the level of understanding of the issues. I think that's frightening. But because after all, it is elective, elected representatives and politicians who are supposed to, you know, come up with the rules, right? As you pointed out, you know, you maybe you should bring in, in people from different professional backgrounds and different demographic groups to, to get a better rounded perspective of what the issues are with, you know, application of technology, whether it's in free enterprise or policymaking. Yeah, absolutely. I think just to sort of end our discussion, perhaps by touching a little bit more on other products like cryptocurrency and and that kind of area, which is quite, I don't think people really have a full understanding of, of what a cryptocurrency actually is and what that means. But what I find really interesting about it is the ability to be able to pay for ordinary things like your coffee using, um, mm-hmm. you know, a card that is the currency is, is obviously it's, it's obviously a cryptocurrency. Have you got any thoughts around that in terms of the future and consumers use of that? Would you think we're too early on at the moment? The underlying technology blockchain, it's a great invention. And I also think the selling point, the USP of a cryptocurrency is like like a currency like Bitcoin is it's not centrally controlled. You can see if you look at the price chart of Bitcoin, I, I would venture that one of the reasons it's been rising the last year or so is because of the uh, well economic and sociopolitical circumstances of the world, right? So, so it, it is seen as a way of checking out of the financial system. 
system, much like gold is. So it does have some inherent value in that you don't have to rely on a bank. But but I think that the more ama amazing part of the story is that the underlying blockchain technology can be used in many other domains. Because if I were to send you some Bitcoin, all that happens is it's a transfer of information via a network. Almost the same as sending an email, because a lot of the stuff under the bonnet, the cryptography is almost exactly the same. And so because these systems are decentralized, they are run according to algorithms, mm -hmm. a set of rules that are clearly observable to everyone. And what that does is that different parties can engage with each other without intermediaries. And it, you need not send a token, a Bitcoin, because, because it's just a transfer of information, we can use it in processes where you've got uh, verification checks, sign-offs, uh, so, so things like trade finance, letters of credit, uh, things like uh, trading of uh, unlisted securities, things mm -hmm. like tracking the provenance of artwork. These are all domains where you, traditionally speaking, have to rely on experts and intermediaries mm -hmm because the different transacting parties don't trust each other. Mm. Well, if we have a decentralized system that works, that runs according to the code and no one can control or corrupt it, well, then we can interact with a high degree of confidence. Mm -hmm. Just as when you sent me an email, you had a high degree of confidence that in, in my response to that was indeed myself and not mm -hmm. someone else. So that's the the short you know explanation <laughs> yeah. of why blockchain technology works. To plug my book shamelessly, there's a whole chapter on on how it works in my book for for mm -hmm. those listening who are interested. <laughs> no, I mean it's definitely it's definitely a really interesting area and I think you know hopefully that they will have more success on the accessibility side of things in terms of being able to off make offerings that are actually going to be attractive for all. The accessibility is, mm. is interesting because technology is very messy and complicated. So, mm. so we will eventually get to a place where spending, say, Bitcoin or transacting or engaging with these systems really is no different for the user than, say, sending an email. Yeah. And I think it's great that all this is really coming out about the time where young people are so in tune with the digital world that this is for them it's it's a fantastic um future in terms of being able to and they are well they are they are in the right position really to be able to make those decisions and have better understanding of those things so i think it's coming at a right time there is so much good information i mean there's a lot of bad information on the internet but there's also <laughs> so much opportunity to learn so, so for example mit they publish all their lecture notes free on the internet. So you can learn maths from one of the best maths universities in the world. So, mm. so there's tremendous opportunity and learning for, for young people. Definitely. Even though, you know, you know with the, the pandemic, the crisis, things are looking bleak. Well it, well, it will pass. And because of the change, all these new technologies, blockchain, internet of things, machine learning, and the freedom of information, there are big opportunities in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, yeah, the world is going to change a lot over the next 30 years. So, so it'll be very interesting. Well, thank you very much, Niels. It's been fantastic speaking with you and um, exploring your book. And I think we've had, you know, from your perspective of, uh, you know, writing the book and having, a, you know, a, a real sort of insight into these areas and my sort of regulatory side of things, I think it's been a fantastic opportunity to to speak with you, particularly about 
fintechs, blockchain, cryptocurrency, accessibility, and the different demographics within our society that we need to be considering. So thank you very much. And um, I would recommend the book highly to anyone who would like to explore more about fintechs. All right. And also, if if anyone has any questions about the book, uh, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn. Thank you very much, Niels. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Legal and Governance Hub podcast show today. If you know anyone who could benefit from our podcasts, please share this with them. If there are any topics you would like covering, DM me or leave me a comment below. If your organisation could benefit from consultancy and training, please visit legalgovernancehub.com for more information. Big thanks to everyone supporting and producing this podcast. That's it for today. I hope you have a great week and I'll see you next time.